We're grateful for everyone who supports us. Thanks to all our sponsors. This is an ICRT podcast. Enjoy the show. We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. I'm joined today in Taipei by regular commentator Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And in Taipei also by equally regular commentator Ross Feingold. Good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing President Tsai Ing-wen vowing to hike the minimum wage on an annual basis. Reports that Japan is planning to send an active duty defense attaché to Taipei. Hundreds of people gathering in Taipei to mark the anniversary of the Tiananmen Square protests and talk of Taiwan becoming a center for remembrance in the Chinese-speaking world and the closure of Taiwan's last legal brothel, reigniting calls for the creation of a red light district. But we'll begin the show today with KMT Chairman Eric Jew having a busy week in the United States this week, meeting with government officials, members of Congress and think tank representatives, as well as attending the reopening of the KMT's liaison office in Washington, D.C. Jew began the trip meeting with Taiwanese journalists in the United States, telling them that the visit was aimed at showing his friends in the U.S., that the KMT's line remains unchanged and the party will continue to communicate with America as long as it's beneficial to the Republic of China and Taiwan. Ju went on to play down speculation, though, that the trip is aimed at paving the way for his possible 2024 presidential bid, telling reporters that it has nothing to do with the visit. He then visited the Hoover Institution, where he reiterated the KMT's close historic ties to the United States and said the party continues to fight against communism and compete with the Chinese Communist Party over values and political systems. Ju then met with U.S. State Department officials in Washington, D.C., and according to Ju, those talks lasted some 50 minutes and focused on a wide range of issues, including energy, security, the economy and trade, as well as science and technology. Jew then held talks with White House national security officials, and those meetings took place at the Washington headquarters of the American Institute in Taiwan. And speaking after that meeting, Jew said the two sides exchanged views on various issues with a focus on security, national defense and energy. Jew then visited the Heritage Foundation, where he held talks on issues including Taiwan's industrial supply chain before heading to the U.S. Capitol to meet with lawmakers. Jew also popped in to the Brookings Institution Forum, where he said the party has been mislabeled after 14 years and is reopening its liaison office in Washington to help convey the message that the KMT is not pro-China, but pro-US. He also met with members of the Congress after that meeting, and he pointed out that that visit was non-partisan, as the lawmakers were both Republicans and Democrats, and the talks focused on issues including security, economics, and trade once again. And of course, Jew also oversaw a plaque unveiling ceremony at the KMT's new liaison office in Washington, describing it as a return for the party's voice in the U.S. Capitol. Now, according to Jew, the KMT's voice had disappeared in Washington following the closure of the previous liaison office shortly after President Ma Joe was elected in 2008. And he went on to also stress once again that the KMT has been mislabeled as a pro-China party, and it's always been pro-US, pro-democracy and pro-peace, and dedicated to defending Taiwan since its founding more than a century ago. So, Ross, busy week for Mr. Ju there. Uh, Gavin, how much did they pay you to deliver that enthusiastic uh, recounting <laughs> of what happened during his trip? Uh, he was only in Washington for a couple of days. He made it sound like he took up residence there and that every important uh, stakeholder in, in Asia or Taiwan affairs 
The reality is he was only there for a couple of days. He didn't meet with very important uh, members of the administration. He met with some officials who are responsible for for Taiwan related issues, including at AIT, including from the State Department. But it's not like he met the the top State Department official responsible for East Asian affairs. He didn't meet Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor. He didn't meet Kurt Campbell, the so-called Indo-Pacific czar at the National Security Council. A lot of important foreign policy people are actually uh, uh, in, in Los Angeles for the Summit of the Americas this week. Uh, He met with a few members of Congress, but there's uh, 435 in the House and 100 in the Senate. So if he met with with five or 10 or whatever the actual number is, it's not very important. Who knows if they'll all even be reelected in in, uh, five months when the U.S. has its uh, congressional uh, election. I, I saw he met with Steve Shabbat of Ohio, who's who's a long time. Taiwan supporter. He's one of the co-chairmen of the Taiwan caucus in the House. However, he's also extremely close to pro-DPP uh, Taiwanese in the, in the Taiwanese diaspora in the United States. And when Chun Shui-bian was president, Steve Shabbat would come here and be a, a very enthusiastic of President Chen. I mean, he's no, he's no friend of, of, of the Kuomintang, that's for sure. Uh, uh, his speech he uh, you know, gave it a somewhat uh, as expected. He tried really to, to give a, an answer that was unclear about the, the party's support for the 92 consensus. So we support it, however, but uh, it's a non-consensus consensus. Uh, he also, uh, as I had predicted in a commentary in the Taiwan media, threw around the word friend and old friend as many times as possible because that's that's his habit. He likes to call people uh, pangyo or lao pangyo. Uh, ultimately, here's the key thing, because I don't want to talk about this as long as you did, Gavin, because I'm not here to advertise for him or any other political party. Uh, this will have no impact on how Taiwan voters perceive the Kuomintang. The route for electoral success in Taiwan for the Kuomintang does not go through Washington, D.C. any more than it goes through Beijing. So if the party wants to be successful in local elections or national elections, they need to have policies on different issues and candidates that the voters like more than the other person, uh, whether the other person's an independent or from DPP or Taiwan People's Party. This trip addresses none of that, right? There, there was no housing policy. There was no elder care policy. There wasn't even a COVID policy that was part of this trip. You say you're for trade. Well, okay, who's against trade? Oh, even the even though the, the DPP tried to paint the Guomindang as like anti-US trade because of, the, of their position against pork with ractopamine, I, I didn't think that was a, a very uh, intellectually honest argument. I'm sure the Guomindang wants to make money or wants Taiwan companies to make money from the United States too. Uh, but, but it was very successful. Uh, uh, voters actually believe that. Uh, so, so for for Jew to go to Washington, say I'm for trade. It's like, okay, well, who 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 is it? So that I mean, that's a non-issue for the voters. Uh, so uh, ultimately, I don't think this will have much effect at all on the party's popularity here in Taiwan. And Brian, of course, he stressed several times when he wasn't talking about his old friends about the KMT not being a pro-China party, but being a pro-US, pro-democracy, and pro-peace party. Yeah, so this is something the KMT has really struggled on throughout the years, whether under Chu or under other chairs, trying to turn around its image to seem less pro-China. And in this case, it's trying to come off as 
more pro-American in order to counterbalance that. That's to try to win back young voters and so forth. But then oftentimes when you are trying to turn around the party's image, you are still touting long-standing historical platforms of the party, such as the 1990s Jew consensus. And so that is still the case with Chu. Um, it's interesting, I mean, because Chu is historically viewed as more pro-U.S. within the, the KMT itself. However, among the general public, I think that there's not really this perception. He's just perceived as the KMT chair, and he's someone that has been around for quite a while in terms of senior positions or serving as new Taipei mayor or as the KMT's presidential candidate and chair and, and so forth. Um, and so this trip is aimed at doing that. But even then, there were so many stops and starts where the, it seemed like he was going, then he was not going, and so forth. And this is the same process that has also been seen with the KMT's uh, Washington, D.C. office. It's a, there was news that it might open under Johnny Chang, then, then the news disappeared for a while, and then now it is taking place under Eric Chu, and so forth. And so the KMT also, even in terms of this, uh, trying to rebrand itself or come off as more pro-U.S. or actually having good ties with the U.S., this has also had many stops and starts. And I think that is due to internal party factions uh, or just the, the failure of the leadership to actually manage to get these things done. And Brian, what about his comment about the reopening of the KMT office in Washington, D.C., when he told a think tank in the U.S. Capitol that possibly the KMT miscalculated that it would possibly be the ruling party in Taiwan for a long, long time when it closed the office down in 2008? Yeah, I mean, I think it seems a mistake then in order to uh, close the office in terms of short-term thinking, but rather not prioritizing long-term thinking. In terms of maintaining relation with the U.S., that is something the KMT probably would want to do. Uh, but then there's always the concerns about expenditure and so forth. I think what's particularly interesting now regarding the office reopening is whether the office in the U.S. and the staff in Taiwan will be actually on the same page because of the fact that the KMT sometimes does seem to be rather split on the issue quite presently. And Ross, what about the office? What will the office be doing? I mean, Eric Jew has said the office will be there to communicate the party's policies and ideas. Yeah, they don't need an office in Washington, D.C. to do that. You could do that just as easily from here in Taipei. AIT's got how many hundreds of people uh, as an American? I, I'd like to make sure that they're working very, very hard. Uh, so if the Kuomintang needs to talk to Americans, they don't want to talk to Brian. They could call up AIT, and AIT's got a, a large sec a political section of people that the the Guomindang could talk to. So again, I mean, this office it's not going to change uh, voter perceptions. It's not going to help win the hearts of voters. I, I, as I mentioned, there's a way to win the hearts of voters. It's to give them policies and politicians that the voters want to vote for. Uh, having this office. It does not factor into electoral success. And I, I think if, if the Kuomintang thinks so, they're, they're just very naive. Of course, the KMT has been cash strapped recently and it's got a very glitzy office and a rather expensive building, no doubt. Well, I, 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 I mean, in, in reality, it's probably not that expensive, relatively speaking, right? You know, anyone could get a, a very small office space that, that just seats a few people. Um, you could get that in, a, in an Insta office. It, it's probably relatively inexpensive. Uh, but uh, that is an interesting point because part of the re reason for this uh, repeatedly rescheduled trip was not only to go to Washington, D.C., but was also to visit with overseas supporters in Washington and New York City and San Francisco and L.A. And part of that was to raise money. So 
question for uh, Chairman Zhu and uh, Chen Yixin, Charles Chen, one of the legislators whose whose title is uh, actually head of the overseas department, not head of the international department. So he's responsible for dealing with overseas supporters. How much money did you raise during this trip? Right. There, there were some photos of, of some of the uh, events that Zhu attended, uh, receptions with, with overseas supporters. They don't look very well attended. And who knows if every person in the room actually paid for a ticket or paid top dollar. Uh, so, yeah, it would be great if uh, for the Gomidang if, if uh, Chairman Zhu said, oh, yeah, we, we we really had a slam dunk on the fundraising. Let me tell you, we, we raised a million dollars on a million U.S. dollars, not Taiwan dollars on this trip. They haven't said anything. So I'm ex- I, I don't think they, they raised a lot of money either. Otherwise, they'd be bragging about it. Moving on now, President Tsai Ing-wen on Monday of this week announced that her administration is hoping to continue raising the minimum wage every year. And she's made such a move one of her central policies. Speaking at the annual assembly of the Taiwan Confederation of Trade Unions, Tsai said her administration will take steps to overcome every obstacle to carry out this goal. Tsai acknowledged that small and medium-sized enterprises have been hurt by a surge in domestic coronavirus cases in recent months, which could make absorbing a minimum wage hike in the coming year difficult for them. However, she stressed that the government will provide assistance to small businesses to help them overcome any obstacles. Now, the Taiwan Confederation of Trade Unions says its members hope the hike will continue this year to keep paychecks from being eroded by rising inflation, and its members are also hoping that lawmakers will pass a formal minimum wage bill to establish a mechanism for an annual wage hike. Now, that bill was submitted to the Legislative UN in November of 2018, but nay, nothing's happened as it's yet to be passed. Meanwhile, business owned business groups of business owners and large companies are calling on the government to come up with an appropriate complementary set of measures to support plans to continue rising the minimum wage. So, of course, Brian, rising the minimum wage does benefit a lot of people but of course we have to remember this is an election year yeah that's right and so it's not surprising then that the uh, dpp and the time ministry were proposed raising the minimum wage in the sense i think it's interesting then you will see a backlash from industry groups uh, who will particularly cite covid 19 and the effects of covid 19 on industry that might not so play well with the general public and i think as with the time administration's other efforts regarding labor or labor law sometimes it can be contested uh, for example with the attempts to change or the, the, the sorry the the changes to the labor standards act that occurred in its first term uh, this high administration ended up bouncing between the demands of labor and demands of industry and ended up displeasing both sides and so i think that's also to be a question if that will happen here. But for the DPP, I think it is an electoral uh, strategy to try to gain support to seem as though it was supporting the average people. Because I think particularly even in times in which Taiwan's economy is growing, sometimes people do not feel that because they do not feel their wages are increasing. And so they perceive Taiwan's economy as doing badly. And so they will actually view the DPP as responsible for this poor economic performance, even if the results are actually just that the, 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 the gains for the economy are not trickling down to them. So, Ross, an election sort of twist there or the actual government will be able to do this? Well, of course, it, it factors into election year politics. And it's good to say that uh, we're helping the people at the bottom. Uh, and I'm sure they, they do want to get get their uh, wage raise. Uh, this is one of those, these issues that never goes away in Taiwan, right? Wage, st- wage stagnation, what to do about it uh, every time it's discussed. The uh, industry uh, trade organizations, as you alluded to, uh, they oppose it. We also have to keep in mind that if we're talking about raising 
the minimum wage, then we're only talking about raising the wage for the people who make the minimum wage. It's not an edict to raise the the salary of, of the vast majority of workers in the economy, whether those are white collar empl- uh, uh, workers or blue collar workers. Right? We're only talking about people who literally make the minimum wage. Now, of course, there's always the hope that there's a knock on effect throughout throughout the wage scale, especially at the lower end. Uh, but again, this would only raise the wage for people who make the minimum wage. You know, people, uh, young people, were you know, working at at, at at shops and things like that. Uh, so ultimately, it is a, a relatively small amount of, of uh, employees, workers throughout the economy. But yes, inevitably, business leaders will complain. Uh, you know, they're they're going to have to eat the cost. Uh, they'll make less money. Uh, they're not exactly very sympathetic crowd, though. Uh, They'll do this, right? The, the DPP will do this, whether it's legislative action or executive branch action. They, you know, they have uh, the ability to do this, and they have the ability to negotiate uh, with the business, uh, with industry, and uh, the industry will accept it. There'll be some back and forth and uh, complaining, uh, and yes, it'll be for electoral politics. But I'll tell you, whatever they ultimately agree to, just to show history, will repeat itself. It won't be an amount that, say, NGOs that, that advocate on this issue are happy with, because it never is, right? Ultimately, because the give and take with industry, the amount that, that is agreed to is going to be relatively small, or the, the implementation will be phased in over several years. Uh, so it's, it doesn't really help the people at the bottom of, of the wage scale. And as I said, it, it, it's ultimately irrelevant to people at the throughout other, other areas of the wage scale. And Brian, what about these complementary measures the government could take to ensure they can actually raise the minimum wage annually? Yeah, there's a question, because I think then industry groups will try to drag their feet on it. I think particularly what's interesting in terms of the issue is that in recent years, labor groups have criticized, for example, mechanisms for deciding on uh, wage hikes as lacking transparency. And so I think that it'll be interesting to see if it comes up this time, because that is not something as... Uh, come up particularly as prominent with regards to the notion of wage hikes. And so I think particularly the Italian decision, if it does, if it is able to do this, it would claim this as an accomplishment. But then I think some labor groups would criticize, for example, that it's actually still lacking transparency, uh, that the measures are not clear to the public as to the logic for this and so forth. And I think that, as Ross said, groups would not be happy with the amount raised. They would still want more. And I think that that tension or that back and forth would continue. And media reports out of Japan have been saying that Tokyo is looking to station an active duty defense attache at its representative office here in Taiwan from as early as this summer. If it happens, it will be the first time an active duty Japanese defense attache will have ever served in the office. Now, Japanese media is reporting that Tokyo is considering having an incumbent official with Japan's Ministry of National Defense stationed at the Japan-Taiwan Exchange Association. The post has traditionally been staffed by a retired military officer, usually at the rank of a major general, and they've served as an unofficial military liaison officer. Now, while such a move is likely to draw a rather angry response from Beijing if it does go through, analysts here in Taiwan have been quick to tout its merits, arguing that it will boost the efficiency and strength of military cooperation and exchanges between the two sides. Ross, so of course, this reports come amid Japan also being rather wary of China's moves in the East China Sea and near Taiwan in recent months. Well, with regard to something that you said at the end of the the introduction to the story, uh, communication, it, it made me think of the discussion about the Gobi Dada office of the Was- in Washington, D.C., because uh, Taiwan has long had two active duty military defense attaches at its representative office in Tokyo. So if uh, 
they need to talk to Japan about security issues. There already is a channel to do that, actually. Uh, however, even earlier in, in, in your remarks, Gavin, you, the way you explain this is indicative of some of the confusion here. Is it a civilian official or is it uh, a military officer? Now, a lot of the reporting has actually been very unclear about this, right? They, the reporting uses the word active duty, uh, the Mandarin equivalents, and then it says official. Right? And it's just been very unclear in the reporting whether or not it was an active duty but civilian official, uh, you know, a public servant uh, in Japan's, uh, the equivalent of, of a defense ministry, although they, they use a different name, uh, self-defense forces. Uh, but, but the reporting has been very unclear whether it would be a, a, a currently serving as opposed to retired civilian official from the ministry or whether it would literally be a active duty military officer who would come to Taiwan and, and he'd probably wear a, a suit and tie every day and not his Japanese military uniform, which is what, say, the military attaches at AIT here in Taipei do. So that's been very, very unclear, and uh, it's, it's it's called into question the accuracy uh, of the entire report, which originally appeared in, in a, a Japanese media outlet that's known for its very pro-Taiwan reporting, and it, it's, its correspondent here in uh, Taipei is you know, frequently on TV uh, here in Taiwan talking uh, uh, you know, pro-Taiwan, anti-China, uh, pro-Japan kind of language. It's, Become a bit of a celebrity. Uh, so there, there's been some confusion about what exactly Japan plans to do. Naturally, Japan hasn't officially said anything. Naturally, China has already reacted with criticism. Uh, so it's now up to Japan, I would say. Are you or are you not sending an active duty military officer as a military attache to Taipei? If not, if you're just sending another civilian official who might not be retired, who might still be currently serving in, in, in the ministry, uh, I would say not a big deal. And Brian, of course, Ross made a good point there about the Japanese publication which reported this story. Do you think possibly that publication is trying to nudge Tokyo to, to, towards doing this? So yeah, I think it's always funny when uh, this kind of uh, pattern occurs and a publication reports something and then the ball is in the court of whichever government, which is often the US or Japan, as to whether they actually follow through with this. And so it's possible, um, that is very possible. Uh, but even then, I think, uh, as Ross mentioned, that it's not, in, it's more a matter of signaling when the, these channels to communicate already exist. And so it nudges the needle in a sense, uh, strengthens US, no, sorry, Taiwan-Japan ties uh, in that sense. But then fundamentally, it's it's not a uh, shift in things. So it's still a very minor form of signaling. But in that case, that does not prevent reactions from China. And I think that's that's usually how it goes. And we have to take a short break now, but we'll return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and several hundred people gathered in Taipei to commemorate the 33rd anniversary of the Tiananmen Square protest this past weekend. The gathering brought together activists from both Hong Kong and Taiwan at the Liberty Square in front of the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial Hall, some of whom expressed their hope that the memory of the 1989 pro-democracy movement in Beijing can be kept alive here in Taiwan after the government in Hong Kong banned the hosting of what had long been the world's largest annual candlelit vigil to the massacre there in Tiananmen Square. 
However, local media have been citing several activists involved in organising the memorial every June the 4th here in Taiwan, saying a great effort will be needed for the issue to take root locally. Now, turnout for the event has varied over the years, according to some of the organisers, who have said there are usually at least a few hundred people. But the crowd swelled to around 3,000 in 2019 and 2020 after mass protests in Hong Kong against the extradition bill attracted the attention of more people here. With the former manager of Hong Kong's Causeway Books, Lam Wayne Key, who now lives in Taiwan, of course, saying he believes there's a lack of interest among the general public in Taiwan at commemorating the Tiananmen incident and learning about its history. And according to Lam, the shift of national identity from China to Taiwan in many Taiwanese has made them aloof about what's actually happening in China, Ross. I, I agree with him, but I, I probably disagree with where you want to go. I disagree with him. So uh, attendance, uh, the organizers typically say there's 2000 people. I actually went back and looked at the, the media reports uh, from 2019 and 2020. Surprise, surprise. Every year they seem to say that there's 2000 people. I saw them say it again last week. I had some media dutifully reported that. However, Central News Agency, they, they reported uh, 1,000. I talked to other journalists who, who were there. They also reported 1,000. Uh, I'll share with the audience. I even talked with the police about this. Uh, and uh, they told me that their count was only 300, which might be a little low. Here's another thing. A lot of the attendees uh, were actually from Hong Kong, per what you said, Gavin. Uh, people have moved to Hong Kong within the last, uh, moved from Hong Kong to Taiwan within the last couple of years, and a lot of foreigners, uh, a lot of Westerners uh, attended as well. So when you when you say how many Taiwanese people actually attended, very few, and these tend to be uh, you know, the same activists who feel strongly about issues such as Tibet and Xinjiang and Hong Kong um, and uh, uh, Taiwan, China issues. Uh, so it's the activist community that will show up for these kinds of things. And that's just a very, very small number of people, as Mr. Lam indicated. But from another perspective, if you want to say that Taiwan and China are separate and we don't want to be part of China, then there's some logic, with all due respect to Mr. Lamb, there's some logic in, in people not having that high of an interest in this because it didn't happen in our country. And if your country is Taiwan and you really believe that and you believe it is not the same country and the, you know, it's not connected politically or legally to China, uh, then arguably you, you should have uh, some interest because it was a tragedy, but but it's not your country. And, and your interest in, in what transpires domestically in China wouldn't be any more than your interest in uh, commemorating other tragedies that have occurred worldwide. Yeah, and usually it is not more than a few hundred people. It's one of the stories I report on annually, though this year I was not there due to self-health management after a bout of COVID-19. And the year before that, it was online because of streaming due to COVID. Um, and so, it did swell in the years around 2019, and one has seen the framing of the uh, commemoration shift much more to bringing up Hong Kong. And so there are often speakers from Hong Kong who may be dissidents or other politically active individuals that are now present in Taiwan, or just average Hong Kongers living in Taiwan today. And so, for example, with this year's commemoration, there is the attempt to show both sides. You have a Taiwanese moderator, you have a Hong Kong moderator. Uh, there's the uh, presence of, for example, Casey Wong, the artist with uh, his installation in the background. He also talked as well. And then Lam Wen or other Hong Kong political activists will talk. 
Uh, but I think particularly what was interesting is that the debate regarding whether to commemorate Tiananmen Square, uh, whether this is part of Taiwan or, or so forth, uh, that also occurs in Hong Kong. And this has particularly been on the rise in recent years with the rise of uh, localist sentiment, emphasizing Hong Kong identity versus Chinese identity. That is before the crackdown that prevented any commemorations from taking place. Uh, but even then, regardless of that, this debate in Hong Kong has become particularly intense. And comparatively, in Taiwan, the, event is, the, the debate is not as intense. It still draws tens of thousands of people in Hong Kong annually, regardless of this debate, whereas in Taiwan, it's only ever really a few hundred. And so this year, the debate particularly surrounded the Pillar of Shame, the uh, sculpture that was in the University of Hong Kong that was demolished. And in Taiwan, they unveiled a, a replica. This is to commemorate the Tiananmen Square massacre. But the controversy regards that the name of the pillar in Chinese says National Pillar. And so what nation? And that then raises criticisms. For example, Ling Qingyi of the DPP criticized this, whereas you would have pro-independence parties such as the MPP or the Taiwan State Building Party actually still present at the rally. Uh, but then with regards to that, I think the, the kind of attempt to cut off Taiwan from China is, is that's uh, been a long-standing debate. But I think particularly what also gets raised is the question of Taiwan's relation to Hong Kong, because I think particularly there are growing voices in Taiwan that will treat Hong Kong and China as though they were about the same, that Hong Kong might as well now be part of China. Ling Tingyi of the DPP uh, kind of criticizing this issue regarding the pillar is interesting because she was also one of the opponents to loosening measures to allow Hong Kongers to obtain permanent residency in Taiwan on the basis that this could allow for Chinese spies to mix in or other forms of Chinese influence to enter Taiwan disguised as Hong Kongers. And so I think this this voice is increasingly present as mixed up with this kind of debate regarding Taiwan and China and Tiananmen Square commemorations. So Ross, it appears that Taiwan is like, we like Hong Kong one minute, but we don't really like it the next minute. Well, that, that, that's been a, a practical issue uh, within the discussion of uh, Hong Kong and events in Hong Kong since 2019. It, it's just it's been part of the discussion throughout this period. And uh, as we've talked about on your show many times, Gavin, you know, the government uh, says, you know, we want to support. We, uh, we want to welcome. We want to make it possible for people from Hong Kong to come here. Uh, but. Uh, then ultimately they'll still say, oh, but we have something like 19 existing channels for people from Hong Kong to uh, reside in Taiwan, which to be fair to the government is true, right? You could come as a student, there's investor visas, you can marry someone, uh, et cetera. So there, there, there's already existing channels and the, the government says there's no need for some kind of broad uh, uh, refugee policy. The, the government still doesn't really support uh, having the legislature pass the refugee law, which has been talked about on and off again for, for many, many years. Uh, so they, they want to use it politically, of course, and the government did so, or the DPP did so with extraordinary success in 2020. No doubt they'll start talking about this more as we get close to the local election. And certainly as, as we get close to the national election in January 2024, we'll hear them talking about Hong Kong and we don't want to be the next Hong Kong um, a, a, all the time. And, and we'll see what Jew says. Jew will say, oh, but I love America. <laughs> I opened an office there. That'll be his answer uh, to, to, to whatever questions are raised about this topic. Uh, how, however, uh, I would expect not much to change, right? I would expect next year we'll have the same conversation and the same speakers will speak at the Tiananmen commemoration. The same media will over over report the number of people who will attend. There'll be some foreign commentators. And if you're listening, you know who you are, who are going to say thousands of people the Taiwan attended and Taiwan is ready to stand on the front line, et cetera. When actually, as as the three of us have been saying, I think the number of people in Taiwan who who genuinely are interested in this issue is, you know, frankly, just in the few hundreds. 
But of course, Ross, we, we have to talk about Mr. Mine Joe and his faux pas. On yeah, that was a bit of anniversary yeah. day. Yeah, you know, Ma, Ma uh, for many years, and, and probably with with um, some good basis because of his policies, uh, has been accused of being too pro-China. However, he he's always tried to refute that by having this 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 interest in Tiananmen, and, and you know, he won't talk about any other human rights or democracy issue uh, in China with, with any regularity, if, if at all. However, every June 4th, uh, he'll take this commemoration really seriously. Like, it has a real emotive uh, effect, apparently, on, on former President Ma. So every year, uh, going back to before he was president, he was mayor, and then when he was president, he says something about Tiananmen uh, and like, you know, this is like some watershed moment for his own personal uh, interactions with China. So it's like the one time per year he'll say something critical about uh, China's human rights or democracy or lack thereof. Um, but this year he was very critical of democracy in Taiwan or the direction of democracy in Taiwan and under the current government of President Tsai. And, and it's actually not the first time in, in recent months where he's made similar remarks where he's basically said, oh, Taiwan's no longer a democracy or it's it's a democracy with a, with a lot of flaws. Uh, and look, we, we know what he's referring to, right? He's referring to things like uh, government influence in the media, which does exist. Um, President Ma wouldn't be wrong on that. Uh, we're talking about things like uh, people who criticize government COVID policy suddenly uh, get a knock on the door from the police who are investigating them for spreading rumors and violating uh, different laws that uh, could, could get you in trouble. If, you know, if, 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 if I say on the show today something inaccurate uh, about the number of people or the, who, have, who have COVID or the number of people who died or the number of children who, who've died from COVID, uh, you know, I might get a knock on the door from the police. And there are, unfortunately, many examples of that. Usually that's just over-enthusiastic police, right? I don't think President Tsai is sitting in her office saying, go investigate some commentator or somebody who sent a message uh, to a small number of friends on, on, on social media, but, but there are examples of that. Uh, but I would not equate that with Taiwan's democracy uh, being in, in mortal danger. But, but to hear President Ma say it, that that's basically what he's saying. And uh, this doesn't go down well with the public. You know, even if there's segments of the public that think it's a little ridiculous that some some person gets investigated by the police for what they wrote uh, on social media, which ultimately only a few tens or hundreds of people may have seen, even if the public thinks those things are a bit ridiculous, uh, I don't think the public is going to agree with President Ma's uh, fairly broad indictment of the state of democracy in Taiwan. And then the other thing is President Ma said that you know, just, just days before Julie Wen went, was in Washington, D.C., and, and uh, since so many of those people in Washington, D.C. only get their news about Taiwan from a couple of English language sources that are pro-government, uh, they, they read the worst spin. Uh, you know, even if Ma was wrong, the spin made it look even worse. Uh, and, and that's where those people in Washington get, get their news about Taiwan from. Uh, so uh, the, both the content and the timing of what he said was just not ideal. And it was Brian, President Ma Ying-jeou said, Taiwan is a democracy without freedom.
Yeah, that's right. Or uh, particularly this lion from Ma is something increasingly prevalent. Uh, it's claiming that Taiwan is a liberal democracy. There's democratic backsliding. I think particularly Ma is leaning heavily into this, which was sort of reverse the narrative of Taiwan's democratization. And I think that's an interesting uh, rhetorical frame taken by Ma recently. And he said it was an unelected dictatorship, for example. And so then alleging the DPP of authoritarianism. I think this is particularly his attempt to really sabotage the relations between the Tsai administration and the U.S. in part uh, by having this perception. Because particularly when Ma came back to power, this was seen by some, uh, let's say, political scientists and similar types as the two turnover tests, marking Taiwan's maturation as a democracy, that there could be a peaceful transition of power. But then I think Ma is trying to tactile along these lines. But it did really get the crowd angry. It was brought up uh, several times during the Tiananmen Square commemorations. And so one wonders who Ma's intended audience with regards to these comments were, at least domestically, in that respect. And of course, Brian, the premier retorted by saying, while there are still people who go against the facts and whitewash autocracy, not only will they not be accepted by Taiwanese, they will also become the laughing stock of the world. Yeah, and so I think that may be addressed to that the uh, Ma's intended audience is in part internationally uh, with regards to perceptions of Taiwan internationally. And so it's one of those questions, too, I think, particularly with the uh, KMT's framing of its return to the U.S., how will it try to depict the DPP? For example, the KMT's lashed out at the DPP for claiming that's misleading on the regards to the KMT, but the KMT also then wants to have its own narrative of the DPP's current actions in Taiwan. And before we go this week, Taiwan's last legal brothel looks set to be shuttering its doors for good. According to law enforcement authorities in Taoyuan, the owner of the Tian Tian Le reported in March that the brothel will close its doors on June the 1st, but has yet to apply for the withdrawal of its license. Police say if the owner fails to resume operations by July 1, the license will be automatically revoked. Now, local media has been reporting that the coronavirus pandemic led to a steady decline in clientele, and the four registered sex workers employed by the Tian Tian Le have now decided to leave the brothel. Now, the rise in illegal online prostitution in recent years is also being reported as a reason for its closure, as it's well it's cut into the brothel's business. Now, lawmakers passed revisions to the Social Order Maintenance Act in 2011, allowing local governments to establish red light districts to legally manage the sex industry. And the closure of the Tian Tian Le has once again reignited calls for the creation of legal red light districts in some of the island cities, Ross. It's an issue that just doesn't go away, that there's periodically calls from uh, NGOs that represent uh, women uh, or men in this industry to establish more of these red light districts in, in more uh, locations around around the country and, and, and facilitate that, which is really the issue. It, it's, <clears throat> it's the willingness and the openness of police and uh, business licensing officials and ultimately politicians, whether in, in the uh, executive branch of the city government or a county government or in the, the legislative branch, the, the city council or the county council, to be supportive of this. And, and very few politicians or government officials are supportive. And that just keeps the industry in the underground gray area, um, you know, the, the unregulated area, uh, which doesn't really help anyone. Uh, it doesn't really achieve the public policy goal that was originally intended with, with the legal change uh, that you mentioned, that that there can be licensed, uh, regulated red light districts. Uh, but that, that's not going to change, right? Again, there, there's very little appetite uh, among government officials or uh, elected representatives to facilitate the creation of, of legal brothels and, and red light districts. So uh, I would not expect any change on this. And Brian, why do you think it's such a taboo topic? 
Yeah, I think particularly politicians and his view is risky uh, in terms of uh, just that the sex trade has been stigmatized in Taiwan historically. So when you call for legalization, this can be used against you by your political opponents. Uh, just also concerns about, let's say, social order and that sort of thing. But then that doesn't change that there's already a lot of sex work that occurs in Taiwan and will continue to occur. Uh, and so I think it's actually quite interesting because this, this uh, particular business was closed due to COVID, but there was much concern regarding uh, COVID clusters among the places where sex work takes place. I mean, in Wanhua, where I live, for example, among tea parlors, quote unquote, but also massage parlors and, and uh, hostess bars and, and that sort of thing. But also in Zilong more recently with uh, this year's COVID outbreak that is continuing uh, because of the fact that there is also prostitution that occurs in Zilong in, in uh, places along the docks and harbors and, and so forth. And so despite that, and despite the fact that these are affected groups, uh, there has not actually been a lot of momentum in terms of pushing for, let's say, legalization of sex work from sex work organizations. I think it reflects that they have a pretty weak hand, actually, in, order to, in terms of social advocacy. And so that is also then translates into lack of support from politicians. And Ross, do you think that legalization and regulation of the sex trade in Taiwan should be explained better to the general public? Yeah, sure, but who's going to do that? Again, politicians or government officials uh, don't, don't find this an attractive issue politically to, to stand on that side of the issue, right? So uh, to use the examples that Brian just mentioned, whether it was in, in Wanhua or Geelong, it's very unlikely that there, there'd be many politicians or municipal officials who are going to say, this would not have happened if the owners of these these facilities had licensed as sex uh, services instead of licensing uh, as as KTVs or massage or not even being licensed at all, I would have preferred you license as a sex work. Um, so there, there's just very few politicians who are willing to do that because it's just a total loser from, from uh, a public perception perspective, right? The public is just gonna come after them. Uh, opposition. Yeah, so, so if it's a, a Guomindang municipal official who says that, then the DPP will criticize or vice versa. So it's just not a winner for government officials or politicians to, to do what you suggested, which is to educate and say, let's bring people out of the gray area uh, where they're working in something that's called a KTV, but actually they're selling sexual services. Let's bring them out of the completely uh, illegal area where, where they're not licensed at all, not regulated. Um, and, and let's just make it uh, above board. We have a legal basis to do it, right? So we don't need to change the law. We already have a legal basis to do it. Let's just bring them in to, to the framework. Again, there, there's just very little interest in, in politicians or government officials uh, or even police, for example, to, to do that. And that's where we have to leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And by Ross Feingold. Have a great weekend. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan Talk here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favorite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.